Let's pray. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit today. Give us ears to discern the words that you have for us. Help us to leave here knowing our identity in Christ, knowing the direction that you'd like us to go, and knowing our purpose. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Wait till that noise goes away. All right, perfect. It's good to have so many of you here today, the week after Easter. It's good to have you here uh, to see some of our teenagers that are helping with the service. But let me ask you a serious question. When you think of the youth today, are you filled with hope or are you scared? Perhaps you catch yourself saying cliches like these. Kids these days, they just don't know the value of hard work. They just don't know how to, they don't know what it was like back when I was a kid. Back when I was a kid, I used to have to walk to and from school up hills both ways. Just taking their selfies on their cell phones. They don't have a clue. Maybe you find yourself on the sidelines complaining about youth. Maybe you do get scared. Well, I've been doing youth ministry for 20 years and Now I'm wearing several hats, but uh, in my times of youth ministry, I've been filled with hope about our youth of tomorrow, and at times I've been scared too. And I want to start with the negative before I bring the positive up. Remember, I'd been in youth ministry eight years, and I was living in a small town in southwest Virginia, and there was a group of us in these different small towns, and we all came from suburban places. And we used to have competitions, because I was on staff with Young Life, to see who could get the most kids on trips. Well, the problem with this competition is we weren't vetting very well on who we let on our trips. You know, we would just try to get anybody to come there just so I could say I had more people on my bus than you did. Well, in one particular summer, I brought a large group to Sharp Top Cove, which was a Young Life camp in Georgia, and I definitely did not properly vet these kids. On about day two, we were in the leader lounge, all the leaders, you know, from all over the country, and we heard this huge explosion in camp. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, my first thoughts were, I bet it was one of my kids. And sure enough, this kid, I I coached him in football too, but he had gone online and learned how to make a pipe bomb and decided that it'd be fun to light it off behind the building. Well, this was post-9-11, and the camp director didn't think very highly of that. So he got sent home on a Greyhound bus. But that same day, he actually had company on the bus because this other kid I brought, he was from a foster home. I didn't really check his background And apparently he had gone off his meds and he had some problems and he was getting very volatile at camp trying to pick fights with people. And one of my leaders happened to go in his bag and found that that he had stole over $200 worth of merchandise from the camp store. So we put him on the same Greyhound bus with the other kid. And, you know, that night before we put him on the bus, we couldn't have him at camp. And I was supposed to spend the night alone with these kids. And the one kid who made the bomb, I actually uh, trusted. He was just did something stupid. The other kid I didn't trust. And so I got my leader, one of my volunteer leaders, who was like a bodybuilder. So he stayed there with me in the hotel room with these kids because, and I slept with one eye open the whole night because I didn't know what this one kid might do. But fortunately we got him on the bus and now we just had the good kids left or so I thought. Well, then the ropes course guy came and talked to me and said, Hey, I think one of your guys stole some of our rope equipment. 
So the kid who did it was from a wealthy family. He was a good kid. People would say, oh, yeah, he's a good kid. He wasn't a good kid. He had all these carabiners in his bag. Each of those cost about 75 bucks a piece. He probably had about $500 worth of uh, ropes. I guess he was going to sell back home. So I came back from that trip, and I was a little bit scared about our youth of tomorrow. But fortunately, with all those trips like that, I've had so many amazing trips. I've had kids who've done amazing things, kids who put their hope and trust in Christ that are uh, doing great things in their life, not only in their careers, but for God's kingdom. So I do have hope. But I think if we're all honest, we are concerned when we look at the next generation. Maybe, maybe you're concerned about what are the youth like that we're raising today? Are they going to have the same values that you do? Are they going to know the value of hard work? Or is this the generation of excess, the Black Friday generation that goes after cheap sales to have more clothes than they know what to do with, where they don't appreciate anything? In the 1999 movie, The Fight Club, Tyler Durst, which was played by, Black, uh, by Brad Pitt, it was an apocalyptic movie that talked about the perils of modern society. And he said to his fellow, fellow fight clubbers this. He said, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy stuff we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'll all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact. Well, the movie tends to go into more and more destruction, kind of a nihilistic theme. And the narrator in the movie says, I found freedom. Losing all hope was freedom. You know, Jesus was talking about the generation back in his day, and he was concerned He said this in John's gospel, to what then can I compare the men of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace, calling out to one another. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not weep. So Jesus saw the lack of passion, the lack of emotion, the lack of life in his generation. So is, is there hope for youth, for children? For the next generations? Or is it kind of like nihilism that nothing matters? Just do whatever. Or is it materialism? Get as much stuff as you can. Just have fun. Or is there something else? Is there a living hope, which we talked about in the epistle reading? Well, I believe there is. And I believe that's good news for everybody here today, regardless of your age, whether you're in the beginning of your life or toward the end of your life. And I believe that this hope brings us our true identities, a new and true identity. And it brings us direction, and it brings us purpose. Peter writes in the epistle that we read earlier, he said this new birth brings us into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. A living hope. Well, this morning I want to flesh out what this living hope will look like, what it can look like in the lives of our youth, and what it can look like in our lives if it's not, not already part of our lives. You know, it's interesting. There's several different writers in the New Testament, and all of them were apostles. They had seen the resurrected uh, Jesus. 
So not only had they heard about Jesus and had been passed down through story, they saw him resurrected, and their lives were forever changed. And they had some powerful words to say, to begin with, about what our identity means when we give our lives to Christ. The Apostle Paul says these words in 2 Corinthians. He said, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Paul also writes, So that having been justified by his grace, we might have heirs, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. We all know that heirs are people that inherit the inheritance, right? So if we're children, if we belong to the family, we're part of this. And in John, the Apostle John says this, But these are written so that you may come to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that through believing you may have life in his name. In the beginning of his gospel, he wrote, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. So here this concept of living hope, that we become a new creation, that we can become heirs, children of God, and that we have life in his name, a new identity for those who trust in Christ. This is a great hope for all of us. You know, when I look at Thomas, when Lauren read the gospel reading, it kind of reminds me of a lot of youth. They have doubts. Oftentimes they're skeptical. Remember, John wrote his gospel very purposeful. He included the story about Thomas because he wanted to illustrate what this uh, new identity was like. I think we give Thomas a hard time. He's been known as Doubting Thomas throughout history. But I think if we would have put, himself, put ourselves in his shoes, we would have felt the same way. All his buddies are saying they saw the resurrected Jesus, and he was like, all right, if you saw him, I want to see him too. Because you all may be hallucinating. There may have been something in your wine you drank. I need to know this because if it's really Jesus, I want to tell everybody about it. So Jesus shows up. He touches his hands where the wounds were. He sees his side. He believes. He goes from disciple, someone who had spent time with Jesus, to apostle, somebody who had seen the resurrected Christ. And Jesus says from his life, blessed are those who haven't seen yet will come to belief. You and I. See, Thomas was a great evangelist. He needed to see. He needed to touch. And Apostle John included that as a witness to us down in history. Thomas found his new ID from disciple to apostle, somebody who had seen the Lord. You know, I told you that bad story about youth ministry. Well, let me tell you a great story about somebody who found his new identity in Christ. This is a kid named Jared I worked with in a small town, another small town in Virginia. I took him to camp, and nine out of the ten kids were all saying the right words. They all saying, I'm saved. I believe in Jesus. They knew Bible verses, except for him. He said, I don't believe. I think it's crazy. I'm an agnostic. This was back before it was popular to be agnostic. He knew all these kind of big words, and I was like trying to find Bible verses to prove him wrong. And he wasn't complying. I was like, oh, well, he's a lost cause. I'll just focus on the other nine. Well, it was interesting. A few years later, I happened to be back at one of the camps that we had went to. And there was a group from the old town I was, where I had worked. And I looked at one of the volunteer leaders that they had, and it was Jared. See, he had come to know Christ. He was like Thomas. He had doubted. But then he began to investigate it. He got involved with the local church. He asked a lot of questions to the pastor, more and more questions. 
Finally, his questions got answered through the power of the Holy Spirit. He found out that he had a new identity in Christ. What a powerful story. Sometimes we don't even feel like you're making difference. The Lord's working. Jared had a new identity. Not only does this living hope bring us a new identity, it brings us direction. We think of youth of today, oftentimes we say they have no direction. They don't know where they're going. They're lost. They have no vision for their lives beyond themselves. You know, I think the disciples were the same way. They had spent time with Jesus, and that was great. But then Jesus died, so they were huddled together in that upper room with the doors locked. If they had a power drill, I was talking to William the other day. He was talking about trying to uh, uh, fix one of his doors, and he got a bunch of screws so that that way it couldn't be opened. I think if they had a power drill with screws, they would have screwed that thing shut because they didn't want anybody getting them. The Jews got them, they'd be arrested, and their fate might be similar to Jesus. They were scared, and they had no direction. But then Jesus comes through those doors. He says, peace be with you. They are probably scared to death when he said that. Can you imagine? You have the doors locked, and all of a sudden there's Jesus. Might have been a little humor in that as he said, peace be with you. They probably jumped like five feet in their seats. But Jesus reminded them that he was going to send them the Holy Spirit when he left. They were never going to be alone. Remember in the Christmas story, Emmanuel, God is with us. That was going to become a living hope, a reality in their life. It was going to give them direction. The Psalms remind us of this direction that the disciples had and that we can have. The psalmist writes, God will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go, and he will counsel you with his loving eye on you. Direction for your life. The Apostle Paul, at the end of his life, he had a life that was pointed towards Christ. It was pointed toward eternal life in heaven. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. See, Paul had a direction in his life. Paul knew where he was going. It helped him to live, helped him to have confidence and courage. Which brings me to my third point, and that is purpose. Not only do you get a new identity when you're a new creation in Christ, not only do you have direction and that you know where you're going, but you have a purpose to know what to do on the journey as you live your day-to-day life. You know, our themes of the day of what our purpose is oftentimes are trivialized into sayings like carpe diem. You ever saw the movie Dead Poet Society? Robin Williams challenged all the teenagers there to seize the day because soon there'll be worm food. And that's why they'd read all these dead poets. Carpe diem. But the message and the purpose that Christ has is much bigger than just trying to have a full day or a full life. Or the other phrase that oftentimes gets mentioned today is the acronym YOLO. You only live once. So you better do as much as you can, as fast as you can. Go see the world. Added to that is the bucket list. Make that bucket list. Do all you can before you uh, die. You know, write it all down and start checking it off as you go, all the places you want to go and the things you want to see. But the purpose that Christ has for each of us is much bigger than those. Of course we want to do things in our life and to have a full life. But the life that... uh, that God offers us is a life with a purpose. Remember when the believers were in that upper room, Jesus started talking about this ministry they were going to have to forgive people of their sins, that they were going to become apostles of forgiveness. They were going to tell about what Christ did on the cross, about the power of the resurrection, 
And later in the Great Commission, he tells them to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. They had a purpose, and that purpose led them to start the early church all through the Roman Empire to the ends of the world. And today, millions and billions of people have followed Christ because of their courage, because of their identity, the direction of following Christ, and because of that very purpose of growing the church and growing the faith. I'll tell you another positive story from youth ministry. Another kid I worked with, this kid found a big purpose for his life. He grew up on the wrong side of tracks, was never into drugs or alcohol or those kind of things, but he was just kind of a goofball. He made everybody laugh. He was super smart. He made good grades, but the teachers couldn't stand him just because he never seemed like he tried. He ran for president, and everybody voted for him because they figured when they had their 10-year reunion, he would throw the best party. Well, the teachers didn't like the fact that he was going to be president, so they did a revote. He won the revote, or they kind of had a revote. Then they did it again, and they gave it to some other girl. They said, well, we didn't count some ballots, and uh, so it was rigged. He didn't get the, uh, to become president. He just laughed about it. But he became involved uh, with my ministry and uh, became a volunteer leader after he graduated. But he was still kind of floundering because in this particular town, the factories were shutting down. A lot of people were without hope. And he knew he needed to do something with his life. Me and some of the other leaders got him involved with a discipleship training ministry in Pigeon Forge, Virginia. And he went there, and it was amazing for him. He was mentored and discipled. They encouraged him to go to college. Went to college. It was tough. He had to pay his own way. His family had no money. He was working a couple jobs. Graduated. Then he went on to seminary, Reformed Theological Seminary. Got his master's degree. Nobody in his family had ever gotten more than a high school education. And several of them had even dropped out of high school. Now he's a pastor at a church in Nashville. He does youth and he does adults. He's an amazing preacher. He's an amazing writer. Here he's from this small town in Virginia with everybody telling him he couldn't do anything. He found his identity in Christ. He had direction, and God laid on his particular heart that he was going to be a pastor. So he had purpose. God's using him in powerful ways. This summer, we're getting ready to bring our uh, service learning team back to Honduras for Urban Promise. It's our fifth annual trip. We have several of the kids here today. Several of them are second-timers because they were so touched on what the Holy Spirit was doing on that trip and how God was working in their lives. Lauren and McLaren, Stratton, Christian, Brant and Megan are are several of the kids that are going to be returners along with 15 or 16 others that are coming back there to tell kids about the identity they have in Christ, about the direction, the purpose they found. Identity, direction, purpose. There's hope for you and I. There's hope for the next generation. But that hope is found in Christ. It's not found in ourselves alone. So there's a big challenge today as we listen to these points. First of all, where is your identity? Is it no bigger than your own two feet and looking at yourself? Or is it truly in Christ? Where are you going in life? What direction are you going? Are you following him? Are you listening to what he's telling you to do? Which brings us into purpose. What is God telling you that you need to be involved in? How are you to further his kingdom, to bring about the Great Commission? Since it's Youth Sunday, my second challenge for you all is, what are you doing to help the younger generation 
the youth and children in our church and outside our church. You see, it's easy to be on the sidelines complaining about what they do. And it's intimidating to get involved with with them because we maybe feel we're not adequate. But there's so many ways that we can uh, help with this through prayer behind the scenes, being a volunteer leader, sitting with children in the nursery school, reading them uh, Bible stories, being involved with Sunday school. And then outside the church, there's kids that need you, need you to be praying for them, need you to be volunteering. David Wilkerson, who wrote The Cross and the Switchblade in the 1950s, read an article in Life magazine about the Puerto Rican gangs in New York City, and the Holy Spirit laid it on his heart that he needed to not just be on the sidelines to be involved. So he went there through his own danger and oftentimes is being ridiculed and began to reach out to these gangs. And slowly he began to get converts, Nikki Cruz being one of the big ones. From that uh, ministry, the, uh, the ministry Teen Challenge was started, which is still going on to this day after David Wilkerson's death in 2011. You see, he listened and he became involved. He didn't stay on the sidelines. Scripture backs this up. In the book of Titus, when Paul was writing to the young pastor, Titus, he says these words to him. You you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled and sound in faith, in love and endurance. Likewise, he says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. And then he says, similarly, similarly, that's a tough word for me to say, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And everything set them as example by doing what is good. And your teachings show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. So he's telling Titus to get involved with people of all ages, to be a good example, to be somebody that shows them sound doctrine, that's somebody that helps them find direction, their identity, and their purpose. We're called to do that as a church. It's interesting. I was reading about the Sioux Indian tribe and what they did to make boys into men. It started when they were in their mother's womb and their mom would sing to them songs of, of hunting and warrior stories. And then when they were a baby, they continued to sing them and tell them these stories, these lullabies about how these little boys were going to become men one day and become heroes in their tribe. And then as they got older, the men would uh, kind of take over from the women's job, and they had three things that they would do to them. They had a catechism. A boy would const- father would constantly ask him questions to make sure he knew all about the things in nature that was going to help them to become a successful hunter. In addition to uh, this catechism, as he asked him questions about, you know, what side of the tree does the moss grow on, or, you know, where are these footprints from, they would do storytelling and talk about the history of their tribe. And then the the same boy would have to recite that back to the other elders in the tribe. And then there was mentorship. As they would go along along and walk, they would simply observe and be emulated by the other men in the tribe on hunting trips. And they'd learn the lessons as they'd speak to the boy and tell him about what he needed to know to become a man. So that tells me a lot for our church. If the Sioux Indian tribe understood the importance of not just saying, like we do in our baptismal vows, We will, with God's help, 
but to take this seriously and to know that that last part, with God's help, that we too can be doing this catechism that we're helping the kids to know, understand the sound doctrine, to understand the stories of the Bible, and through mentorship to help them to become young ladies and young men who know and love God and use their lives to glorify him through the power of the Spirit. We as a church have a great responsibility. Lastly, before I pray, I want to look at the youth in particular. You also have a responsibility. It says in the scripture, let no one despise your youth. Well, you don't have any control over that. But you do have the second part. But set the believers an example in speech and conduct, conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. You have a great responsibility. We have a great responsibility to have our identity in Christ, to find our direction in him, and most importantly, with those two in place, to use our lives to glorify him, to find our purpose, and to know that every day matters for lives of, as believers. Right now, I'm going to say a prayer for us. And the prayer is going to be three parts. I want to pray for the parents and grandparents who have children. I want to pray for those of us who don't. And then I want to pray for the youth. Jordan's going to play, pray, uh, play a little uh, acoustic music as I pray. But I want you to take some time to reflect on your own lives on how God is uh, calling you to be involved with helping others to find their identity, direction, and purpose. Let us pray. Lord, I first lift up the parents and grandparents in this room. You've given them a great task to raise up our youth, to know and love you, to find their identity in you, to have direction, and to have purpose in you. Strengthen us with the power of your Holy Spirit so that we can be faithful stewards of these great gifts you've given us in our children. Lord, I also pray for the rest of us who don't have kids. I pray that you'd guide us to know that we too have a responsibility to become involved in relationships with youth and children and people of all ages to share the gospel, to share the good news, and to use our lives, the gifts that we have, to be mentors, to help others to find their identity, direction, and purpose. And finally, we pray for the teenagers in this room and the children. I pray that they would find their faith, hope, in you. Help them to set their lives as examples. Give them that direction, that identity, and give them that strong purpose that they can have the courage to do difficult things to serve you and to live lives worthy of your calling. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.